0: Now I'm here. And now I'm here.
1: And now I'm here.
0: And now you're here, dear listener, we can begin.
1: Welcome to episode 26, Sounding Board.
0: I'm Martin Packer.
1: And I'm Marna Wally from ZOS Development in IBM Poughkeepsie, New York. I guess you don't need to say where you're from, Martin. You're just so famous you can just say your name, right?
0: Or or arrogant or something. And I guess you didn't need that introduction either, Marna.
1: (laughs) And we also have a special guest in this episode, Mr. Dave Betton.
0: And to be honest, I've wanted to have Dave on this podcast for a very long time. So one of my life's ambitions is fulfilled. So where have you been lately?
1: Well, lately is a relative word, right? The last trip I took was to Fort Worth and for share, It was a great conference like it always did. Lots of work. I was really tired after it, but that was way back in February. And that was the last time I traveled.
0: And in around about the same time frame, I was in Las Vegas for what's called Fast Start, which is actually technical sales training, which was, amongst other things, a really good chance to meet some good old friends. And on the Sunday before Fast Start, I got out into the desert in a rental car to Valley of Fire State Park, which is one of my favorite places on Earth.
1: Well, it's uh, the last time that probably some of us will see anything of a vacation sort for a while, boy.
0: Yeah, I think so. And in April, late April, I actually spoke twice to a set of Nordics customers. I spoke on Zip Capacity and Performance, and the other presentation I did was So You Don't Think You're an Architect, which is a brand new presentation. Actually, Zip Capacity and Performance is what I would call a thoroughly refurbished presentation. Now, unfortunately, I didn't actually get to be there for real. Uh, It being late April, I think most people will understand exactly why. So... You know, we're not a political podcast. We don't have much social commentary in it. We don't really want to go overboard on this. But I think it's reasonable for us to reflect on two fairly obvious things that everybody has been thinking about and talking about recently.
1: Yeah, because uh, as you know, pretty much after Sharon February, the, the world did go a little bit crazy.
0: So from a narrow parochial point of view, it might well have affected the sound quality because we were recording various pieces of this episode In various locations, in various different ways. So there might be some inconsistency between those, uh, regrettably. But, uh, you know, you record when you can, where you can.
1: Yeah, obviously. And and, and they have affected us. They've affected our, our work. It's affected our podcast. It's affected a lot of things. But of the two things, first, let's talk about COVID.
0: And actually much more serious than our travel plans being messed up, which they were.
1: Exactly. And, you know, it's not I don't want to just think that, you know, our podcast was affected. COVID is much more serious than this and, and more serious than when we could put our podcast out and the sound quality, of course.
0: And those, I would say, have been absolutely necessary things for people to do. And I'm glad so many people have taken COVID very seriously.
1: Oh, well, yeah, exactly. And, and I know people have made a lot of sacrifices to socially distance. But, you know, as we had we had two items here that made the world go a little bit crazy. And in America, we've had a Black Lives Matter movement underway. And it's really become a larger umbrella topic to talk about a lot of social problems that we've had in the United States for quite a while now.
0: Yeah. And it's caused a lot of uh, turmoil actually in the UK as well. Probably not as much as in the US, but certainly it's been very significant here. Quite rightly so. And also in other countries as well. So we're very much aware of that. Now, I feel particularly strongly about racism in all its myriad forms and always have done. So it's one of the reasons why I wanted to put this in this podcast episode, at least in passing.
1: Yes. And I wanted to make sure that we're always personally being very vigilant about it as well.
0: Yes. And and I'm very conscious of the fact that I am a privileged white guy, a very privileged white guy, I would say. So for me, listening to other people's experiences and perspectives is the key thing, changing my behavior when necessary. And quite frankly, coming from where I do politically, solidarity is a very important thing to me as well.
1: So now we know where we stand on these two issues.
0: And now, dear listener, so do you.
1: Okay, but now on with the show. What do we got, Martin?
0: Well, actually, we have some follow-up. So back in episode sixteen, we talked about MP3 chapter markers.
1: Yeah, you know it was pretty funny. You kept talking about chapter markers. You kept saying, telling me that they were there, and I thought, yeah, right, Martin. Okay, I, I, I believe you. Uh, but I never could see them because on all of the Android podcast apps that I downloaded, and I downloaded a lot of them, I never saw chapter markers. But I did finally find one. I keep going out there pulling new podcast apps, and I did finally find one that showed me those chapter markers that you told me you had.
0: So you can verify I've actually put the chapter markers in when I pretend I have.
1: Yeah, yeah, you did. I, I trusted you, but I really wanted to verify because I really wanted to see them. So this app that I finally found, it's called Podcast Addict, and I just wanted to give it a plug because I it is now my favorite podcast app, and that is the one I try to use all the time now because I like the chapter marker aspect of it.
0: So I took a look at Podcast Addict on the web, and a couple of things struck me. One is the fact that it's not just an Android podcast client. So if you like it, you can probably run it on other things too. Uh, Though personally, I'm going to stick to Overcast on iOS, at least for the time being. The other thing is there is a sponsorship level where you can pay them money. And I look at these things quite often from the perspective of, do they unlock extra features? Now, it turns out in this particular case, it doesn't. What it buys you is the removal of ads in the app. Um, but there might be people we're throwing money at to keep them developing. I wouldn't know, but, but it seems like a reasonable podcast client to me.
1: Yeah. So also I'd like you to explain the title of our episode this time. It's called sounding board.
0: So it's all about the topics topic, which is about audio recording course
1: yeah and at the time that we were recording that episode or that section of this episode you were really sounding pretty zen
0: yeah so maybe you can interpret it as the other spelling of board b-o-r-e-d
1: yeah so at the time of that section the topics topic we actually recorded that before covid19 happened
0: so to be honest practically we're recording things in a different way as we said before but it was the state of the art when we recorded it and it's pretty much intact in, in principle at least
1: yeah, well, I was happy to get into the Poughkeepsie studio to do that, but I'm not going into the Poughkeepsie studio anymore at this, this time. So you'll see that the recording conditions really are different. And I hope it's better for that section because that, I'd like to use that in the future for this podcast.
0: OK, so before we get into the mainframe topic, we have in our What's New section a couple of interesting APARs.
1: Yeah, and the first one I did want to talk about is APAR PH21919. And that was new ZOSMF support. As you guys know, I've been talking a lot about ZOSMF support. It seems like that function has that ZOSMF component has been really delivering a lot of good things to us lately. And this one was a customer requested function. So I know people wanted this. And it's the ability for when you run a workflow step and it runs a job for that job output to be saved automatically. In a location that you choose which is to be a unix file directory location you point it to
0: right and that is in the same format as you would see if you sent the output to stsf
1: exactly and so it is really only a unix directory location so the first question usually is okay can i point it to a PDF? no it's it's a a unix directory pointed to a a location that's going to have enough uh, space to it so we can save all this output Um, make sure you have permissions, things like that. So so point it to a good location. But this is a way for you to have automatic permanent record of that job output done by that workflow, which is really good. Now, this function was rolled back to ZOS 2.3 in PTF UI 68359. And it was also put into ZOS 2.4 with UI 68359.
0: And the other interesting APAR is OA56774, which I suspect is going to end up emblazoned on my heart. And what it does is it provides new function to prevent a runaway sysplex application from monopolizing a disproportionate share of coupling facility resources.
1: Right. So you said coupling facility. I did want to insert here that this function will require CF level 24.
0: Right. And when we say an application, we really mean a coupling facility structure. So this case is in reality pretty rare as scenarios go
1: right but I'm uh, uh, I know that if this hits you it's very important to you and it's also important that other people will avoid it should it ever occur to them
0: so I think one of the things to get straight is what is really meant by a runaway sysplex application so as I say it's a structure and you can measure structure cpu that is the cpu within the coupling facility to execute requests to the structure but actually it You might imagine that a runaway structure um, is one with a high coupling facility CPU consumption. That's actually not what's detected. Having talked to development, I learned that it's based on what effect this structure has on other structures and the service times to them. So if they deteriorate, it could well be that the brake is put on this particular, or the throttle is put on this particular structure that's causing that. So prior to putting on this APAR and or prior to coupling facility level of 24, the scenario would call for service times deteriorating in other structures. And I would expect you would see that in RMF. And obviously, if you apply the APAR and you apply coupling facility level 24, that ought to go away. So structure response times ought to be protected from such a runaway structure. So I think that's quite an important APAR, actually, when you can get to it. And now it's time for our mainframe topic. So what have you got for me, Marna?
1: Well, I've got an interesting topic that I did blog about a little bit, but I did want to include it on this podcast as well, only because it's incredibly important. And I probably have a little bit more to say about it than what I put in my my blog so it's about the Z15 fix cats, okay? And I want to make sure that we all understand them because I continue to get questions on this and I want to make sure that everybody is super clear because when you buy your Z15, I want to make sure you have the right PTFs on. So I get questions about fix cats for the Z15, okay? And there's three categories of fixed cats. We have three fixed cat names for the Z15, and we do get some confusion about what the difference is between them. So in the show notes, I'll have the complete fixed cat name, but let's just call it required exploitation and recommended. First ones I want to go over are the required service PTFs that are in that fixed cat. Now, this is the absolute critical PTF list that you minimally need in order to run on a Z15, okay? So these are ones that you really have to have installed. And actually, recently, unfortunately, some of the PTFs that are in this must-have required list have been involved in some rather messy PE change, which, which, you know, of course, makes it a little bit difficult to get these required ones on when they're in a, a long PE chain. So the question
0: is, if I can't actually get one of these on, what do I do? Do I just give up, or is there a way out of that?
1: Well, there is a way out of it, and there's a couple of options to do, but they do require a little bit of manual work. So first of all, it might be best to ask IBM service for the particular PE chain what they would recommend to do, and you would have to explain to them your environment, maybe they have a plus-plus APAR that they want to provide you, maybe they have a bypass action that you could take, like to avoid something. Uh, until these uh, PE fixes actually close. But they do need some investigation. You will have to look at why they're PE and if you particularly care about that PE reason. And unfortunately, you might need to get IBM Service involved. Hopefully, there's not all that many that you have to talk to IBM Service about. So, another good thing about, well, another good thing, <laughs> another thing about the required service fix cut. Uh, category is that we really try to keep the numbers in this category to an absolute minimum to those that you need installed to have ZOS support the Z15.
0: So basically that means that the, uh, the PTFs are the same throughout the life of Z15 support?
1: Yeah, basically that is our intention, that you have these on, and over time that, that becomes a rather stable list. Of course, if we put out new functions or capabilities in you know, a Z15 uh, update or something like that, this list might change. But the intention is that really this stays rather stable over time. The next fixed category we have, two out of three, is exploitation.
0: So an example of that one, I guess, would be system recovery boost, which is new on Z15.
1: Perfect. It is an absolute great example that you mentioned right there because this is not function that you have to have or PTFs that you have to have installed. Of course, they're very nice to install, gives you very good exploitation, but they are not required, which puts them then into the exploitation category.
0: So as an aside, with the example of SRB that I've just given, we say that it's on by default, but that's really only true if you have the PTFs on, of course.
1: Exactly, because there uh, only is a default when it knows there is a default. So you do need the PTFs on uh, ZOS 2.3 and 2.4 in order to understand that uh, System Recovery Boost is there. Now, the interesting thing about the second category of exploitation is you will see the PTF lists in this category grow over time as we add those new functions onto the Z15. So unlike the required service FixCat, the exploitation fixed cat will increase over time. I hope so. <laughs> yeah, me too. Good reasons to get a Z-15. The third and last category that we have is the recommended service. And this is the the fixed cat that I seem to get a lot of questions about and why recommended is different than required. Okay? Because they seem on the outside that they might relate to the same list of fixes, but they but they don't. And this is where it's been confusing. So usually in the recommended category, this is a fix for a defect that we found, and it really hasn't risen up to the level of what we actually want to call minimally required.
0: So is this the sort of thing that could have emerged while uh, running on Z15, you know, in the, li- in the life of Z15 that suddenly becomes important?
1: Yeah, so we might have seen it in our testing that we did uh, later on it came up or maybe a particular customer found it and we want to share that knowledge with the other customers so that they don't have a, you know, recreation of the problem on their system. So we, you know, kind of think that these are recommended, they are not meeting the criteria of required, so they're not going to stop you from you know, perhaps IPLing ZOS on a Z15, but there are some interesting things that you need to know about it, mainly that it probably is a defect that you want to take a look at.
0: So I could imagine that over time, this category is going to grow.
1: Yeah. So this is another one of those growing categories, like the exploitation categories, the recommended service category. And as we get more field experience, we will probably be putting more things into this recommended list. So expect it to grow. Also, when you're trying to figure out what PTFs you want on for your Z15, of course, you have to have the required ones. Exploitations are nice. But on the recommended service category, you should also do a report on that one just to see how many of those you're missing. We don't have a lot today in that category, so you might already actually even have all those PTFs on. So just run a report and, you know, take a look at it and see what you've got, what your status is when you do the report missing fix. So these, you might you also want to be uh, more selective on which ones you want to install. You know, you don't actually have to have these on. They might be involved in a messy PE chain that you're really not interested in, but they shouldn't really hold up your installation of the Z15 or needing it for the ZOS support.
0: So that's going to be a trade-off, really, of uh, how much change you actually want to get involved in versus what sorts of problems are actually found.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so not having a whole lot of recommended PTFs today on the list might make it easy to include this category. But who knows? You know, after a year or so, there might be a whole lot. And as time goes by, they're already RSU. You've already got them on. So then you, you know, might want to look at it's not very much change. These are fine to include, or they might be ones that you're not too interested in. You don't think you're going to hit the problem, and it would create so much uh, change on your system. You're not willing to take that. So that's something you can take with a grain of salt as the recommended service. But you know, we do want them on, which is why they're recommended and not required.
0: Yeah, so I think this summarizes nicely the difference between required and recommended, which are the two that could get confused, uh, and also the third one, exploitation. So I think this is a timely um, topic to be talking about.
1: Yeah, that's, that's why I did one included on the podcast as well. Uh, by the way, these are not the only three fix cats in the whole world for the Z15. So there are some other fixed cat that we've had around for a while that you might also be interested in for the Z15. One that I'm thinking of particularly is the IBM function sysplex data sharing fix cat that has been around for a very long time. And for those customers that are doing sysplex data sharing, this is a fixed cat they should know and love very well. And also you should take a look at those fixed cats as well.
0: And now it's time for our performance topic, which this time is DF Sort and Large Memory. And I'm very pleased to have my dear friend Dave Betton helping me with this topic. I've wanted to have Dave on the podcast for a very long time, but I think people should know that you were the DF Sort performance lead for a while.
2: That's right, Martin. Uh, I was in DF Sort development for about eight years. And over that time, I was the DF Sort performance lead. So I had a lot of experience with DF Sort and particularly its interactions with memory usage.
0: So you're the right guy to have on the podcast, I think, for this item. I hope so. So, this item actually follows on from Elpida's item in episode 10, which was 2 3 for you, which we recorded way back in 2017. And it continues the managing large memory theme. So, Dave and I have known each other for about 30 years. Um, and between us, we have a lot of experience on looking at memory configurations, don't we?
2: Right. And, you know, I should also point out, for those who don't know, that we work together now. Uh, so, well, I, when I left DFSort, I came over to work with you again. So we've been doing a lot of performance studies around the world, and we see a lot of these large memory configurations now. Uh, it's not unusual for us to see 200, 300 gigabyte LPARs, even much larger, but particularly now with you know ZOS can use up to four terabytes on an LPAR, and with the Z15 now, you can get a total of 40 terabytes total on the box with LPARs going up to 16 terabytes, even though ZOS can only use four still. That's an awful lot of memory, but of
0: course that 40 terabyte maximum is only available on the five-drawer Z15. And it's worth pointing out that you can't upgrade to a five-drawer Z15 from, for example, a three-drawer Z15. You have to get it right when you order the machine. That's
2: right. So with these large memory configurations, there are a lot of different things we need to track these days. Uh, You know, quite often we look at the average free memory because the type of work we're doing, we're usually looking for ways to exploit memory. But a lot of times you need to look at the minimum free uh, as well, because you know, with things like RMF, we we tend to summarize across intervals, and particularly in batch, memory usage can be quite a bit spiky. So we often we'll see cases where available memory can drop down close to zero for a very short amount of time and then come back up
0: so i think it's worthwhile pointing out when we talk about minimum memory free we're talking about the minimum of the samples that rmf has recorded in the interval exactly right and that's not necessarily the minimum amount of memory that was ever free it's just the minimum of the samples but still it's a significant uh Different sometimes from the average free right
2: and then besides available memory you know we tend to look at things like fixed frames because that we're seeing that become more prevalent particularly workloads like db2 page fixing their buffer pools uh, and other applications are page fixing as well things like mq are doing that as well
0: and, of course, now with ZOS 2.4, the ZCX Docker container extensions, that that requires you to page fix the memory when you start up the container address space.
2: Exactly. And, uh, yeah, that's gonna, I think that's going to be interesting to see how that performs when we have rather large working sets all page fixed. Uh, And then you also have the use of large frames, Uh, one megabyte and two gigabyte frames, which were introduced a while back to help manage this large memory and reduce things like the TLB misses. Uh, DB2 is a big user of that, things like Java Heap, as well as other uh, workloads.
0: So let's go all the way back to ZOS 2.2, which many people will have been migrating from relatively recently.
2: Yeah, in 2.2, there were some changes made for controlling fixed memory thresholds because, again, what we're starting to see is there are certain parameters in the OPT for determining when there's a shortage of pageable storage or when we should do MPL adjustment. And what was happening is they were based on the percentage of fixed frames in the system. Well. If you have a singular workload, something like, you know, you have a system that just has a DB2 running, and let's say you have a one terabyte system and you're using, you know, 80% of the memory is fixed, you may be looking at it going, well, I have 200 gig available. That's not an issue. But because of the way these thresholds are based on percentages, it would see it as an issue and start either reducing MPL or signaling a pageable storage shortage. So some changes were made. For uh, systems over 320 gig uh, for the pageable storage shortage, we would just say as long as there's 64 gig available, it's not a pageable storage shortage. Uh, and similar, there was for the MPL adjustment, there, the defaults are based on percentages. their f- fixed numbers, a minimum and a high threshold. And now there's a setting of auto which basically SRM calculates the lower and upper thresholds based on the environment.
0: So that was in 2.2, and there were some more changes in 2.3.
2: Right. In 2.3, we did things for how we manage the LF area. For fixed large pages, when you define the LF area, you are essentially reserving an amount of storage. So what you would tend to do is be very precise in knowing how much Uh, large pages you were going to use and then setting your LF area size just above that because you didn't want to waste memory. If we had a shortage of pageable storage, uh, I mean, of 4K frames, then we might have to start breaking up those large pages to be 4K pages and then put them back. And that can get expensive. What we've done in 2.3 is now that is just a maximum. So the LF area is sort of built as needed. And this avoids that reserving of memory for the LF area. Similarly, with the pageable large page area for pageable large pages, it used to be one eighth of the configured memory on the LPAR. Now it's virtually unlimited.
0: By the way, the large frame area value is actually an SMF71.
2: Yeah, yes. And that's something we can see as well as how much of it is in use we can see from the SMF-71 as well. In
0: fact, there's quite
2: a lot of stuff in SMF-71, really. Uh, Another new thing in 2.3 was the notion of memory pools, where we can specify resource group memory limits. That's fairly new. My understanding, it was particularly for workloads like Apache Spark, which can be a very high consumer of memory until limited uh, I, I don't think there's been much use outside of that yet and you know it, it's something that'll be interesting to see if people start making use of that for other things
0: yes I think I think it will so so far in this item we've talked very much about memory in general let's turn to DF sort and the memory controls for DF sort
2: right so, when I started as a Sort performance lead, I spent quite a amount of time dealing with situations where sort was well known for causing things like auxiliary storage shortages because we were pretty aggressive in our use of memory. You know, we, we can use memory primarily for intermediate workspace, right? We can either create hyperspaces or data spaces, then eventually we branched out into using memory objects, which meant we could use even more memory. So we could be rather aggressive. And we have installation defaults that control all of that. There are specific controls for memory object hyperspace and data space. They're called MO size, hypermax, DSP size. And they control how much each individual sort Use Then there are global controls we call EXP Max, EXP Old, and EXP Res that look at total usage by all sorts in the system. And that's where we we tend to be a a bit aggressive. Now, now I should note, the reason these start with EXP... Is because in the old days of expanded storage is when they were created, but now they apply to the central storage in the system.
0: So originally, hyperspaces would only have been in expanded storage, right? So that's why we would expand the storage is relevant here.
2: Right. And then when we got into the 64 bit real and expanded storage was phased out we just you can still create hyperspaces and data spaces but now they're backed by real memory not expanded so exp max is pretty much just a flat out cap on the uh, total memory all this combined source can use and that's the the, the ship default is max and, and and i'm actually okay with that the, the one that's particularly of interest is called exp old which is we have this notion of old frames. So when D of sort does its calculations to determine how much memory is available on the system, it looks at those pages that uh, have been designated by RSM as low impact. Uh, you know, in the old days, it would have been pages that had a very high uh, UIC. Now RSM has changed quite significantly, and. RMF, uh, again, the 71 will tell you how many low-impact frames there are. But those are basically frames in use by address spaces that have been deemed as low-impact. So when you think of something like a big DB2 buffer pool and it hasn't referenced these pages in a while, they're considered low-impact. So we say, well, we can use that memory, we'll create a large memory object or a whole bunch of hyperspace, Well, that's then gonna cause the real storage manager now to steal pages from those other workloads. And that's where we get into issues with paging, auxiliary storage. So we changed our installation defaults to be less aggressive. It used to be XP old equal max. The ship default is now 50%. What I've been generally recommending in these large memory configurations is to set that to zero because I just feel when we have these incredibly large memory configurations and there's a lot of available memory, we don't need to steal from others. There's plenty there to take advantage of in the available.
0: And the economics has changed so much that so that really does make sense now not to try and reuse so called old frames.
2: Right. And I should mention for these parameters, one of the things I did when I was in DF sort is I rewrote the section on these parameters in the DF sort tuning guide to really try to give some guidance on what you should take into consideration in setting these values. Uh, I believe it's chapter three in the DF sort tuning guide.
0: So let's talk about RMF overview reports because I believe you're a big fan of those.
2: Yeah, you know, we have tooling that, you know, we use that's first our detailed analysis, but for the average user... What I have found is I like RMF overview reports. When you run the RMF post-processor and you have your typical duration reports, paging and all, you can look for specific intervals or summarize over a wider interval, but but it's hard to see over time. And RMF overview reports are really useful because you're basically getting a separate line for each RMF interval and you can look at specific values in columns. So you can track it's very easy to look at the available storage or even that notion of how many low impact, high impact, you know, medium impact frames there were in the system over time and look by intervals. So the uh, RMF user's guide, if you look in the chapter on, uh, I think it's the name of the chapter is long-term reporting with the post processor, there's a section in there with all the overview conditions and for, the SMF type 71, it lists all those overview conditions. So it's something uh, worth taking a look at because like I said, I, I have found them very useful when I don't want to load all my SMF into a database. I just want to get a quick glance at something. And, and, and I found it quite useful.
0: Yeah, and I think when when the customer says, where did you get that number from? quite often we can say this is the field and here is how you get it out of an RMF overview report so customers can follow along at home long after we've departed. So so I think yeah, RMF overview reports could be pretty handy for a lot of people. So as we come to the end of this topic, I, I think one thing to note is everything we talked about is particularly useful for large memory situations and large consumers like DFSort and, and DB2. But actually, everything we talked about is relevant to LPARs of all sizes, customers on different sized machines and everything. So ho- hopefully, you've all got something out of this particular item. So, so again, thanks today for taking us through this topic.
2: And thanks for having me.
0: And now it's time for our topics topic. So we thought we'd do an update on our recording techniques and publishing techniques.
1: Yeah, as you recall, Martin, we last talked about this general topic in episode 12 of December 2017.
0: So that's just over two years ago. So that seems reasonable to me that we would talk about it again. So let's put some structure on this. So we're going to talk about three things. The first one is planning. The second one is the actual recording. Because believe me, we don't just come into the studio and just talk about stuff and then can it and call that a day. And the third one is production and publishing. So there's three stages there.
1: Yeah. So let's start with the first one, which is planning. So
0: we have mentioned before that we're using a mind mapping package called iThoughts. You could regard it as abusing it, but who's to say what software is for anyway?
1: Yeah. And we've mentioned it several times, even though it's an Apple product, I actually am starting to like it. So... (laughs) Other
0: mind mapping products are obviously available. So it turns out that we haven't actually talked about it in this context in the recording process. But we have talked about it several times in terms of drawing topology diagrams for Kix regions and stuff like that. So it, it, it's a tool we're comfortable and familiar with.
1: Yeah, it certainly is. And like I said, I am I am, getting, I am starting to like it. Well, I'm not starting. I've liked it for a while now. That's why we're still using it. So the second one is recording. And as you say, we just don't throw things together and and come and record it, even though it actually might sound like we did. So first of all, we're still using Skype to do our recording. And we, we pretty much have to, right? That's our tool that we have tried and settled on, even though we have tried a lot of other tools. And this is the one we're using still.
0: And actually, we're using it because other podcasters in the past, before we ever got going on this, we're using it, and most podcasters still are using Skype as a medium and, and attempting to record however they can. And talking of which, the way we record these days is to record locally, meaning at each end of the conversation. So we're not generally using pieces that have come over the airwaves uh, because the quality of obviously goes down when you do that sort of thing. So we're recording locally both then.
1: Yeah, so uh, this is the first time I've been so happy. I'm now in the Poughkeepsie studio, which was built here in Poughkeepsie. And so I'm hoping that the audio on my side um, sounds a whole lot better.
0: I like the way you say you're the first time you're happy recording in the, in the Poughkeepsie studio because we've had some attempts before in the Poughkeepsie studio where you weren't quite so happy. But I think we're exiting the babble phase to use the title of one of my old um, blog posts. So uh, glad you're happy with it.
1: Yeah, I am happy, you know, and I had to get a lot of help from Jeff Beastie to know what the heck I was doing in here. So kudos to uh, Jeff Beastie for helping me, being patient too.
0: So from my end, what I'm actually doing is I'm using a couple of pieces of software, or rather I have been using a couple of pieces of software uh, by a company called Rogue Amoeba. And the first one I used was their cheap one, which is called Piezo. But now I've actually graduated to a much more sophisticated and more expensive package of theirs called Audio Hijack which is basically a drag-and-drop pieces of chewing gum and wet string affair that enables you to to process audio in all sorts of clever ways. And we're using it, of course, right now. Um, Now, when I say we record locally, what we both do is we record in stereo. And that's just the recording phase of it. The other thing I would say, and most podcasters would echo this, I think, Unintended uh, is get as good a microphone as you possibly can. So I've actually graduated to a better microphone with a pop filter on a stand, which I can now hold some distance away from the recording Mac, which I'm using. And the other thing that we have had to work on is the effect of of fans. So the Mac actually gets quite hot, so the the fan tends to spin up, and then we have to deal with the noise that that generates. So one of the things I've actually done is I've got myself a cooling platform for the Mac and that provides actually quieter, as it turns out, external cooling with a dirty great fan that gets the Mac down to temperature and keeps it there more or less. Um, Now, I would say if you're looking at external cooling pads, uh, then you'll find that on Amazon and places like that, they talk about cooling and they might occasionally mention refrigeration. But actually, none of the cooling pads that people are selling are actually refrigerating. That's possibly a good thing because it might cause uh, liquid condensation inside the device you're recording on. But nonetheless, that means they have a limited ability to cool because they're just really blowing or sucking air. And some of them really suck. Gosh, that's a Wayne's World joke.
1: Yeah, so these just blow air. Yeah, so because we have the, you know, you talked about the fan speed. We also had another problem, which was sound, where you had to hide behind pillows, right?
0: Yes, yeah, so... so <laughs> I haven't actually gone and bought all the um, the sound dampening equipment that one could buy because it's actually really very expensive stuff. So you know, I, I'm known to hide behind pillows um, as a way of dampening the sound. In fact, right now, there's a cat bed that's being um, deployed to cause a certain amount of sound dampening.
1: Wow, meow. <laughs> yeah, so we really are trying to uh, you know reduce the amount of noise coming out of your side since you don't have a studio where you record.
0: Right, right.
1: Yeah, so also we have to improve the audio quality after we, we record.
0: Yeah, so that's a whole separate thing that that I'm well I'm the one responsible for doing the the mixing and and production as it were. So I'm still learning lots of techniques of minimizing the time taken to 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 get rid of noise and to up the quality.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm glad you do that because that's not that's not my cup of tea. I'm not crazy about having to do that. So I thank you very much for still doing that. But, you know, when we have a guest, it's different because it's now not two people, but it might be three. And the problem is that we can't really record in stereo with three people.
0: Yes. And the other thing is, if we want guests to show up at all, we have to be aware that they might well not actually have any recording software of their own. So, you know, Skype uh, voice recording is not free. It's not even necessarily cheap. So asking a guest to show up with... um, their own software is, is actually a bit much.
1: Yeah. So if we have a third guest that's from a, a different location than Poughkeepsie or, you know, your location um, it's hard. But if I can get somebody in Poughkeepsie, then I can get them into the studio, which makes it local and a whole lot easier.
0: Right. So, so barring that, what really happens is that one of our recordings of the guest has to be used so it's inevitably going to be not a local recording, but a remote recording when that happens. I would like to think that the sound quality we get out of that is better than than a phone in radio program would have, um, and and it should be gen- generally speaking. But you know, if you ever hear us record a guest, it, it's probably not going to be the same quality as if we were doing it in in the studio.
1: Yeah. Um. Okay. So now we're down to our last cord- category, which is production. The first part of production is actually the editing part. So I'm going to let you talk about this side.
0: Right. So initially, probably for about the first 15 or 20 episodes, I was using Audacity on the Mac to do the editing, which is actually a very nice package and it's free. And it still has its uses, particularly um, being able to read in WAV files, which can't be played on, on, on Windows natively. Well, I've actually moved to an app that I think I've mentioned before, which is Ferrite on iOS, which is an extremely nice, very slick app for doing sound editing. And actually, you can do recording to it as well, but that's not part of our workflow right now.
1: Yeah, you had mentioned Ferrite a little bit in episode 16 um, about the Uh, using that tool as well so i'm a little bit familiar with that
0: yeah so so what i was using it for initially was actually inserting chapter markers and that's what we talked about back in episode 16 so that enables you if you have the right kind of podcast client to actually skip to bits you you want to hear or skip over bits you don't not that we want you to do that but we want to give you the freedom to do that
1: yeah i've yet to found an app on the uh, android that will do that but that's okay you you Promise me, and you tell me that it works on apple, so
0: right so so the the whole point about moving to ferrite is it means I can actually edit anywhere that I can swing an iPad now, the only real proviso on that is you obviously can't edit audio with any real fidelity if you're doing it in an environment that's got noise because you can't tell whether the noise is coming from what you're editing or whether it's from from the background oh, and I have to say. If I'm editing, I'm using the same headphones that we tend to record with, which are actually probably heavier than the iPad itself. So so it gets quite bulky carrying around editing gear. I have to say, actually, one of the nice things about ferrite is you can use the Apple Pencil to cut up pieces of audio and move them around and do all sorts of other things. Now, the, the Apple Pencil, of course, is a very light thing. It's about the weight, maybe slightly heavier than ordinary pen. So that's the kit I'm using nowadays, an iPad with ferrite, uh, an Apple pencil and some headphones. Which is actually an advance I think on, on Audacity in function terms. So as I think I alluded to before, while we might record in stereo, what we actually do is we take the two recordings, Mana's and mine, and we throw away from each one the remote piece. So from Mana's recording she throws she gives me both her and me and I throw away me. Now for my recording I throw away marna's piece and that gives us the best quality and then I can move them around, clean them up separately and stitch them back together in ferrite. Now that throwing away the other side is actually about the first thing we do when when we're doing the editing but we always have the stereo original as a backup in case there's something wrong with somebody's local copy and one of the things that, that i do as i say separately for for mana's input and mine is to clean up the noise take out any flubs mostly noise is fan noise occasionally we get things like like actually one of the items in this podcast we were recording we had a cat and we had some wind outside so those need cleaning up Ah. Uh, And then a certain amount of tightening up and making sure all the little bits and pieces come in the right sequence. And there you go, mixing down to now mono.
1: Yeah, so you've described a lot of activities and that may give our listeners some insight on why it takes, you know, a little while to get these episodes out because there is a lot of work behind them. Now, once Martin has done all the editing and he gives me the the final mix, then I have to work on the publishing side. And this is the side that I enjoy a lot. So I've got to upload the audio. We've got to find an image that we both agree on, which you guys may think is easy. But Martin and I don't always agree on images, <laughs> mostly because his sense of humor is a little different than mine. But- and you might
0: we might agree, but you might not agree with us. But guess what? We're the ones publishing, so. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Although it'd be nice if our listeners gave us some input on the um, on the images as well, and then I have to get the show notes ready, so that's my part. And so Martin spends a lot of time on the editing. I actually spend a lot of time on the show notes because I really do want to make them easily consumable consumable for folks that really want to dig in a little d- deeper when we can't spend so much time on something. So we spend a lot of time putting correct links in there and other, uh, you know, PTF information. In this episode, it will be the absolute correct cat names, things like that. But you know what?
0: And to be fair, actually, I end up uh, doing a little bit of editing of the show notes as well.
1: Yeah, you do, because your performance topics sometimes get a little bit um, uh, foreign to me. And so I have to have you spiff that section up specifically.
0: I won't admit to the complimentary problem with yours. <laughs>
1: All right. So, you know, in general, even with the Poughkeepsie Studio, we really haven't changed this part of the publishing that I do. But as we talked about in the last episode, we are going to have to publish in a different location. So if you haven't listened to that episode, make sure you do listen to it because I think we're going to have to move locations and we're hoping that you'll follow us to that new location.
0: So I think we talked about some of these aspects a little bit before. And yes, I know it's sort of inside politics or whatever you want to call it, But actually, I hope you get the impression that we enjoy making this because we we certainly do. But it's obviously more complex than just show up, record some stuff and toss it into the void. And as we come to the end of this episode, it's time for customer requirements.
1: Of course, Martin, you know we have to insert a usual disclaimer here that it's just us talking about this requirement. There's no IBM uh, commitment on this. It, uh, is this. And we're not going to insert that crazy uh, recording that we did a while ago at strange speeds. So let's look at the customer RFE that we are picked for this podcast episode. It's open and under consideration. It's RFE 139477. And this is what the title says it is. Please include the CPU time limit for a job step in SMF type 30. Okay, now the abstract of this RFE goes into a little more detail here. The CPU time limit in effect for a job step is not currently written to SMF type 30 at the end of the step. While a job is running, this information is available in the address address space control block ASCBJSTL and can be displayed or even modified by tools such as a Megamon. However, the information is not retained after the job step completes. This information would be very useful after the fact to see the CPU time limit in effect for a job step. This enhancement request is to include the information in ASCBJSTL in the SMF type 30 subtype 4 record written at the end of the job step. An additional consideration would be how to best deal with the job CPU time limit as specified on the job statement, and whether this can also be catered for in the RFE. The business justification given by the customer was, Our site got caught out by a test job being submitted overnight with time equals 1440 and consuming over six hours of CPU before it was canceled. We would like to be able to prevent similar issues in the future by having the CPU time limit data available in SMF. All right, so that's the RFE in its entirety. So now let's talk about our comments on it.
0: So I think there are two perspectives on this. One is what I'm going to call after the fact, which is namely when the step ends. And the other one is as it happens, which is going to be the SMF 30 interval record perspective.
1: Yeah, I think that it is good to look at this requirement two different ways, because as you know, we've chatted about this in two different ways before we decided what we're going to put in the podcast. But if you look at the RFE, it was calling for after the fact when the step has ended.
0: So I think it doesn't quite ask for all I would ask for, because I think in addition, I would like the source of the limit. So that's analogous actually to the source of mem limit that's already in SMF type 30 which I personally find quite handy. So end of step looks to me to be really quite useful because you could run a query that compared the actual CPU time to the time limit. And you could track that to see if you were heading towards a situation where you would get a rather unfortunate bend because you'd specified a limit that was too low. So I think that, after the fact, would be quite a handy thing to have.
1: Yeah, I I think that would be useful as well. So now let's move to the other perspective of on the as-it-happens front.
0: So... I think I'd quite like the idea of an SMF interval record, meaning SMF 30 subtype 2, 3, having this as well as the step end and I suppose perhaps job end record.
1: Yeah, knew if I could even look ahead even more, the, the tools, we could also have tools that could dynamically change it as well because we've kind of talked a little bit about the tools. So we may not need the SMF information if vendor or IBM tools already do that today, but perhaps it wouldn't be, be not be an IBM high enough priority if those tools existed already.
0: So I'm a, I'm quite a big fan of the fact that SMF thirty interval records behave as close to step end job end as possible. I don't know though whether this one is actually feasible to put in an interval record, especially the source piece, as in where did the um, where did the limit actually come from? But overall, I mean, I think this is a good solid requirement that could be very valuable under certain circumstances particularly the one where the um, requester had in mind
1: yeah i think so too
0: so normally at this point we'd have an out and about places we expect to be speaking at where where we're going to be going but obviously for the foreseeable future entirely sensibly we're going nowhere just like everybody else hopefully one day travel will return.
1: Yeah, the only place I go nowadays is WebEx all day long, it seems. So I'll be glad to get off of WebEx one of these days.
0: Yeah, I'm really looking forward to actually meeting real people, many of whom have become friends of mine in in the customer community.
1: Indeed. Excellent. Uh, So we usually now talk about on the blog. So now that we haven't been traveling, Martin, I know you've got so many. So why don't you talk about yours first?
0: I think it was something like nine different blog posts. But don't worry, folks, I'm not going to list them all in any detail at all. So my blog posts really range over quite a lot of things. And in no particular order, I've actually open sourced a couple of packages of mine, one of which I want to draw your attention to, which is called SD to HTML. It's on GitHub. You can find it under my name, and it's an open source Workload Manager Service Definition formatter, or WLM policy formatter, um, which we might talk about some more sometime. But basically, it, it's a way of getting your WLM policy out in HTML. You are more than welcome to contribute to it, use it, download it, comment, and all the usual stuff. And another one, which is actually nothing to do with mainframe at all, is another policy another product a project of mine that I thought other people would find useful. I've also been playing with Docker. I've also been playing with client server computing, if you can call it, between iOS devices and Raspberry Pi. And on the mainframe front, if you like, I've been talking about channel generations. I've been talking about whether DB2's demands are greedy or not. Hint, they're not. I've also talked about IMS a little bit and unusual ways of looking at SMF data, which seems to be what I like to do. I've been touting my zip capacity performance presentation, which I already mentioned in this episode. And uh, the engineering project continues with a blog post called Engineering Part 4, Activating and Deactivating LPAS Causes Hyperdispatch Adjustments. So a mixed bag there.
1: Wow, that's a really mixed bag, and a lot of them as well. You've been having fun, so I don't have as many as you, but I, but I do have three. So I have one about how IBM is issuing a Zoe distribution, and you can order it. And so that that's called It Zoe. I have yet another in the series. <laughs> I wondered of, how you were to,
0: hang on. I was I wondered how you were going to pronounce that. It's surely it's got to be it Zoe.
1: No, I pronounced it correctly. It's Zoe. Yeah, well, it's at least how I say it. And I hear other people say it. Or is it worry
0: it's Zoe to go with the Bowie knives, as you call them in the US?
1: You are the last one to be making the fun of the title of my blogs. OK. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Ouch. Uh,
1: yeah, I know. I know you have you have crazy blog titles, but they're good. They're funny um another one i had is in yet another gdg to gdge conversion method i hope this is the very last one that we have i think it's the best one that we know at this point point. and also i did want to announce our podcast new home away from home and again if you found this podcast this is the first time we're going to only be in our new home so i hope you found it and are subscribed
0: so i you know i would reflect that that we've both written a lot actually and i'm I guess it's one of the bonus byproducts, if there is one, of this whole uh, COVID thing that I just count myself as lucky to have gained time to write stuff and play with stuff.
1: Mm-hmm. Of course, we welcome any feedback. So please tell us uh, anything about our podcast episode material that you have questions about, want us to you know, have in future episodes. We'd really like that feedback.
0: So you can reach me as martin Packer at uk.ibm.com or martinpacker on Twitter.
1: And I'm mwalle at us.ibm.com and mwally on Twitter.
0: And let's all just hope that the world manages to beat this dreadful COVID thing sometime soon.
1: Yeah, in the meantime, we intend to keep recording.
0: And hopefully on a more frequent basis than we have. So it goes.